don't speak I know just what you're thinking <laughs> it's nice good, good morning. morning oh we're back we went on off our the scale we did Mim got married I left my job oh my and god and now into the interview woo um how are you hmm I'm good. It's been a weird transition stage for me because I've left the skinny. I'm no longer a theatre editor, but my former colleagues were howling at me because I left and then very quickly pitched them a story. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like I haven't left yet. So uh, the new issue of the skinny is out and it looks great. Well done, Eliza Geerty, my successor. You're doing a great job. Very Woo-hoo! proud of you. Woohoo! Smashing it. Yeah, she is. So is all of Team Skinny. I love you all. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What, what's married life like? Oh, it's awful. Oh, uh, well, I, I knew that. I yeah. knew that would happen. Yeah. Oh, I could have told you. <laughs> it changes nothing, you know. Just wearing a nice, amazing outfit. Well, I was kind of like planning to stay with him for a long time anyway, so yeah. that doesn't feel too much different. So is, is it the notebook or a post-it? Notebook or a post-it. Is that a sex in the same? No, it's Miss Vanji. Oh, Vanji. She was asked about Brangy at the reunion, which was oh. kind of flat. It was kind of flat. Drag, the RuPaul's Drag Race season 11 reunion was a bit but flat. But they, uh, I got some goss about this from Ooh. a certain ex-contestant, and um, apparently that is that that filming takes like a full day. I'd imagine it does. And it's also when they they have already recorded the live final. Mm-hmm. So they're all like, well, they've really seen one of these bitches win. Like, because they, they film... Do they all film of the, all of them winning fil- and then they choose one so nobody yeah. knows until yeah. it airs? Until yeah. it airs, yeah. So, but you can tell... It was hard to know because Silky was on very good behaviour. Yeah, she was quite... I was like, what's... she been tied to that chair? What's going um, on? She's barely speaking or moving. Evie was definitely more herself than... That was obviously like peak Evie she was on great form yeah and um yeah Brooklyn Akira was quite noisy but it like last last uh season I can't remember who it was but one of the queens that went out not Asia but whoever was lip syncing and went out the first round as well as Asia and the butterflies mm. was like really rowdy in yeah. the reunion yeah. and it was because they knew they hadn't won yes because they knew that it was one of the two queens that had won oh uh-huh oh but maybe they changed the format, but then Rue said, like, join us for some lip sync mania. Yeah, I wonder what's going to happen. Ooh, we'll find I mean, out on Friday. It's been a funny old season. It has, yeah. I mean, it Odd was... decisions made by RuPaul. Um, yeah, Nina West, come on the podcast. Nina West, we love you. We'd yes. love to have you on the podcast. We think you're fantastic. Campaign. I just, there were some people that were kept in that I was like, hmm. I don't know why they were kept in and I think Silky got too many chances Um, and they're talking about Vanjie getting too many chances but I was like Silky got a lot and then at the reunion Silky was like I gained 30 pounds and that's why I wasn't so put together but then other people were going well there was extra padding there was extra this so I feel she always gives an excuse though it's never her fault I don't know I still love Silky I mean, because she's... I appreciate her. She's like a grating personality, but not mm. Scarlet. No. <laughs> like, Scarlet's just plain annoying, whereas yeah. Silky, you're like, uh, lol. And the Silky Evie thing seemed so... The hatred seemed so genuine. Yeah. Anyway. And mutual. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just gotta lol. hate each other the exact same. But I think I think the frustrating thing for, like, mega fans was after All Stars, we were like, right... Okay, at least we're back to the regular format yeah. and hopefully they're going to stop doing about. all-stars. Yeah, yeah. And then this season hasn't... Even though some of the queens were, were pretty good, I don't know, I read a blog that went through and pulled out like a few like final five queens from other series and it was like, whoo, they would have won this. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. Know. Anyway, interesting. It is. So uh, who who did you interview this week, Mim? Who's so been waiting I in the wings all this time? Rachel Healy while I was in Adelaide at the Adelaide Fringe, working at the Adelaide Fringe. And I just put out a tweet like, any cool women I could interview or... I can't remember what I did. But anyway, the press office replied saying, yeah, you can interview Rachel Healy. And I was like, isn't she the co-director? So there were two things to note here. Um, one, my interview is a little bit different to normal. A little bit more profesh. 
because it felt like a little bit more of a professional environment and that doesn't mean that I didn't take interviewing like Steph or Busty mm. or people I have a previous relationship with seriously but I was like she gets interviewed all the time and doesn't know me and mm-hmm. she might be looking at party lines so I was like I wanted to be myself but I also wanted to have a conversation which leads to the second point that when I put a post on Facebook saying I was going to be chatting to her what do people want me to say they suggested lots of things that I didn't cover sorry but that's mostly because I didn't want to go in as an antagonizer like Mm. I didn't feel like that was my role I wanted to interview her from the perspective of you were a woman in power yeah what are your where do you feel your responsibilities are how do we make change I didn't know if it was helpful to go in and say why is a ticket at Adelaide Festival $100 whereas the same show at Perth Festival $30 Mm. like what you know I have my own beef with like when I've gone and bought Adelaide very expensive Adelaide festival tickets I've uh, on the door I've been charged like a ten dollar which is like five six pound cover charge which I think is just that's what outrageous but again like although obviously these are things she should answer to I wanted to know what it's like to be um the breadwinner mm-hmm. and be such a high profile breadwinner yeah and she talked really honestly about her husband who's a composer who is has always been the caregiver mm-hmm. and I, re- I really liked her i did too from when i was listening to the interview i remember when you were asking her about childcare and things and i was like oh no what are you doing but then late you followed it up and you're like this is why i'm asking and this is why blah 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 and you got down to the nitty-gritty of it, it wasn't like a puff interview it's like tell me about your your festival yeah. well i hope not and, and the work wasn't you were just like i want to know how you work and i want to know how you got here and that's what i really liked it but it wasn't you know it was really good to listen to because i was listening to her and i was like oh my god there's a line she had about it was like when you neglect housework, I can't remember what you're talking about. Uh, if you don't do 50% of the housework, then you're sacrificing that other person's 50% of their career or something like that. And she was talking about the, the share of domestic work and domestic labor. And I was just blowing my mind. I was like, oh, I'm so terrible at housework. Oh, no. So, yeah, it made me question a lot of things about myself and how I work and stuff. So it was very interesting. And that's coming from a mom of one and she has three children. So Yeah. No, I hope, yeah, I think it's a different perspective and I think that that's one of the things like that we forget, especially with women in the arts. You know, Theresa May is a see you next Tuesday. Yep. She's screwed up. And we will. She She's has gone. No- She's going soon. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Although I did enjoy, well, I didn't enjoy enough end of May puns. Yeah. Because it is also the end, the of, end May. of May. Um, but like, you know, she has shown no accountability or emotion over anything apart from losing her job. Yeah. Not good times. Didn't cry for Grenfell. But, didn't cry for yeah. Windrush scandal. I, I don't want to just... Bl- this is the thing. It's not about blindly comparing powerful women. Mm. I'm sure there might Rachel might feel like, no, we want to charge $100 a ticket because people will pay it. Mm-hmm. And that would be a different conversation to have. Yeah. But to hear her talking about building a career, taking opportunities, moving her family around the country... Mm-hmm. Um, was so good and even little things like save the date for a for a high profile culture leader to say no we need to this needs to be taken more seriously and that was probably one of the most like glib things i said in the whole interview but we'll see and like i would um love to hear what people thought either end like if there were more things i should be we should we should be asking if we're interviewing more women in programming or mm-hmm. like those positions because all the women we interview are powerful powerful amazing women yeah send us in things that you think are relevant and but you know if it makes mums feel a little bit more chill about striving for success that's a wonderful thing yeah um and if it hopefully um we we sat and chatted for another half an hour after the podcast she like we really got on we had a big chat about the edinburgh things we'd seen summer hall program um a very a fiercely feminist work that i can't tell you the name of yet because obviously it's not announced after the 5th of June after the 5th of June no 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 because it's for Adelaide Festival next year oh I thought you meant this year's Ed Fringe Uh Festival no (laughs) and it's got quite a um, uh, inflammatory title and it's it's toured prolifically it was um at Summer Hall last year. Um, but we had a really great chat about that work and the, the stories she'd heard kind of behind the scenes from other programmers who'd been looking or supporting this artist when she was on tour. And I was like, oh, you were ready to go into battle on that. Yeah. And I admire that a lot. Um, just, yeah. Yeah, she'll be 
Let's pop it on. Pop it on, babe. Um, do, 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 do. Also, I kept it to 40 minutes. Nice. Whoa. Well done. Yeah. Boom. Girl. Here we go. Uh, hello. Um, so I am in Adelaide, um, down in uh, deepest, darkest South Australia, and sitting opposite me is Rachel Healy, who is the co-artistic director of the Adelaide International Festival. Is that correct? Uh, it's, uh, it is an international arts festival, but it's simply called Adelaide Festival. And the marketing for the last few years has been a massive AF which that's was right. <laughs> especially exciting when you rolled that out. It was like, oh, that stands for something else. Uh, um, yes. Uh, in fact, when, when Adelaide had some of its hottest weather, when it was in the 40s, I think it was 47 one day in January, and uh, posters of um, of Adelaide Festival and, and its AF were everywhere with the heading Hot AF. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I guess um, it's probably worth doing a diving straight in. The festival opens next week. That's right, Friday. And this is your third? Correct, yep, it's our third. Um, but you are Adelaide born and bred. Yes. But you spent a good chunk of your career in Sydney. That's right. Um, at Belvoir Theatre and the Opera House. That's right. I was 10 years general manager of Belvoir Street Theatre, uh, which is uh, one of the most uh, acclaimed theatre companies in the country. And uh, I followed that up with being director of performing arts at Sydney Opera House for four years. And then following that, I was executive manager of culture for the city of Sydney. And so my responsibility was really to develop the city's first cultural policy uh, and action plans, which uh, was quite a different kind of role, but a really, really thrilling one. And so um, it was after that policy work was endorsed by council that quite coincidentally I had a phone call from the headhunters looking after the Adelaide Festival and Neil and I ended up uh, taking the role. Nice. Um, so that those are kind of, I mean, I would say like I put, um, in terms of, I mean, I'm coming at this from a UK perspective. I've worked in Australian festivals for the last six, seven years, so I, I'm familiar with the big companies, but like Malthouse, Belvoir, the shows that you see co-proing with um international companies across the world yeah. and then obviously the opera house is one of the most famous buildings yes um cultural buildings um and then adelaide is probably apart from in our industry one of the least known towns in australia cities in australia in terms of what's going on and then once you've been to australia you're like oh it's the festival state it's where the wine comes from yeah um so what made you feel like i want to was it a going back home or was Sydney home at that point what made you think I want to go and head up this huge event look when I grew up um, uh, so when I lived here in the 70s 80s and early 90s before I I moved to Melbourne I I initially lived in Melbourne uh, for two or three years and then moved to Sydney after that uh, Adelaide Festival was absolutely regarded around the world as one of the top three festivals in the world and and often it is those smaller cities Mm -hmm. like Edinburgh or Avignon in France that uh, actually do festivals better than anybody else because those cities all three Adelaide, Edinburgh and Avignon are all very walkable cities and so you don't spend your festival day in cabs trying to get from one part of the city to another and the cities aren't overwhelmed with commerce in the way that they are with Sydney say or New York or London big cities um, world cities like those are not great festival cities strangely because there's so much going on all year around all the time it's very hard for an arts festival to totally take over but a smaller city like Avignon like Aix-en-Provence like Edinburgh certainly like Adelaide uh, the festival and fringe absolutely take over the city you can't land in Adelaide in March or Edinburgh in August and not know that there is a festival uh, going on. It, it permeates every corner of the city and because all the venues are co-located, you can uh, run from venue to venue, see 
four or five or more shows in a day, run into friends along the way, talk to people in queues. I mean, the, the great thing is not only, I guess, the, the cultural activity that you're exposed to and the work of extraordinary artists that you're exposed to, but the social interactions that happen in and around that, which make it so thrilling and, and something that people come back to. So my interest in uh, returning to Adelaide was absolutely not, you know, to go home for... Um, you know, my home was Sydney by then. I'd, yeah. I'd met my partner in Sydney. I'd lived there for 22 years. Um, I built a career and a life. All my kids were born in Sydney. But uh, the attraction was the Adelaide Festival. It was, uh, as I say, one of the top three in the world. And I think that its, uh, its reputation had slipped for a whole range of reasons uh, over recent times and because I'd grown up in its um in its heyday in the in the halcyon days and Neil had certainly spent many years in Adelaide working and living here uh, when it was um, at the apex of its popularity and success we both had a very strong view that Adelaide could get back there again and could uh could reclaim its title as uh as one of the top three in the world. And in fact, after our second festival, uh, American Express uh, named Adelaide as one of the top theatre festivals in the world. And it was the only one in Australia uh, to be so named. And so increasingly, uh, I think, and I hope, uh, Adelaide is reasserting its primacy in the festival landscape globally. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of reinstating a place or owning a place, um, what role um, does your program and you mentioned festivals around the world that you know and obviously spend a lot of time in around, yep. um, around the year? So it's maybe I guess it's two questions. Is one your role taking you away from home and taking you to see work constantly mm. and how that how that is managed? Um, and two, um, what makes you feel that? Adelaide is receptive and ready to see this amazing work. I mean, and then there's, you know, there's probably a third, fourth, fifth question in there about, you know, like having Gravity and Other Myths, a local company who've built and built and built and built back with their second enormous production, you know. Um, but I guess, yeah, we could start with travel and being a mum and being a, you know, uh, running a, you know, a huge festival and being away for huge periods of time. And how does that how do you manage that? Uh, it, it's it's certainly a really challenging part of of the job. I mean, I'm I'm lucky in that I have an incredibly supportive partner who also uh, very very luckily for our family does not have a desk job. He's a freelance composer, so he has a studio at home. So um, unless he's uh, working on a bump in with the theatre company, if he's written some music for. Uh, for a piece of theatre, yes, he has to be there in rehearsal, and yes, he has to. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yes, he has to uh, spend time in the bump in uh, away from his studio. But most of his work can be done from home, and that's meant that he is able to keep uh, things running at home. Um, and my periods overseas can be managed. There's, there's just no way I think I could do it without him there. Uh, I mean, we've got three kids, 10, 12 and 14. And for many years, we had au pairs to help us. Uh, we don't have one at the moment because my oldest is 14 and they're sort of moving out of the age where they need an au pair. It's more like a babysitter. Um, we've got great neighbours who, who kind of help us with babysitting. But um, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it, I'm, I'm reminded of, of uh, some journalists who talked about, um, what, a particular journalist uh, wrote about this question recently. Uh, she was giving, I think, a lecture to some university leavers about their career, or women, and, you know, what, what are your suggestions about, as a female, starting off your career? And, uh, and the usual 
advice is, you know, lean in, um, put your hand up to do everything, you know, how you conduct yourself in the workplace, how you build net, you know, yeah. professional networks and, and allegiances and so on. And she said, I'm going to give you really different advice. I'm going, uh, my best professional advice to you is think really, really carefully who you're your life partner is going to be because if you choose somebody who will only do 30% of the housework or 25% or 45% of the child rearing then that's whatever you know they are not doing that is their share that is time you are not spending on your career and I was quite shocked to read it but um, I thought about my own situation, which, you know, my friends say I'm, I'm in the 1% uh, of couples and families where my male partner does way more than his 50%, just way more. And there's no way you could have a job where you spend, certainly in the European summer, uh, I'm away for a very good amount of time between May and September. I try not to be away for longer than three, three and a half weeks, but then I'll be back for a fortnight and then I'll go again. Um, There's just absolutely no way that would be sustainable if I didn't have uh, a really supportive, knowledgeable and capable partner who is cooking meals every single night, who is, you know, has, makes sure that the homework's done, who is supervising support, who is volunteering for uh, the canteen duty, who is doing all of the things that are absolutely assumed in every other aspect of life to be women's work. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I said something um, about my partner who is at home wrangling... Um, builders in our flat and I said I don't want to call it luck that he is so happy and willing to let me to let me to accept that I go away for work and they said it shouldn't be luck but it currently still is luck because men are raised conditioned to presume everything happens around them and um yeah, it's that. It's also when I mentioned, you know, mum in that preamble. I mean, we do um, pretty much just interview women. So in terms of the podcast, it's a completely relevant question. But if we were interviewing a uh, male human um, who had kids, I would be asking them and I might be pushing them a little bit more on it. So what do you do, dad? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I, I, I tend to agree. And I think that's also like that's that's a um, opportunity for women to realize that you make decisions about love and relationships that we ha- are so often told you're not supposed to. You're supposed to fall in love with someone, let them treat you however, and then get on with it. I mean, that's a huge generalization. But the idea that you go, I love you, I'm, um, I, in, I, I would love to spend my life with you but your choices can't match with mine and I I'm gonna wait for the person who's ready to I think that's a very brilliant message for young entrepreneurial women and women in the arts as well you know it has to be a two-way thing absolutely and I think it's about early conversations I mean um, you know what happens particularly you know women in the arts often meet men in the arts and what are What's going to happen if they, if this couple decide to have kids and they both work in the theatre, which tends to be evening-oriented work, yeah. where childcare isn't available. Childcare, certainly in Australia, finishes at six o'clock. Uh, so who, who doesn't go to the bump in? Who doesn't go to the preview? Who doesn't participate in those after-rehearsal drinks, which sort of turn into semi-work meetings? Uh, who's um, is that fully shared 50-50 genuinely or is it going to fall to one person to take responsibility for that and and I think you know really honest open conversations about expectations and what the reality of having uh, a family or uh, even running a household what that means is absolutely essential because um, most of the time you know you discover you discover it as you do it yeah 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 um all right. Well, then that seems if we're talking about uh, home, that's a nice little segue into um, Adelaide artists. Um, so coming from let's talk about Gravity and Other Myths. I've yes. worked with the team many times in Edinburgh um, and um, they're an incredible band of creatives. What was the point that you 
um, realised this Adelaide world touring fringe act yep. was ready. And what is the difference? What is the lowbrow? What is the highbrow? I think that's a nice way to draw it all together. When does circus, is it scale? Is it budget? Is it um, the seriousness of the team when they come to meetings? Is it, how does that, how does that work for you in terms of uh, your look, program? Look, um, the story uh, with that company is that, uh, I mean, they're, they're a sort of perfect example of what long-term investment in uh, community cultural practice can deliver because yeah. Behind Gravity and Other Myths is an organisation called CIRCIDS that's been going since the 80s, which conducts circus workshops and trainings for training for little children, um, tweens and teens, and... Uh, it, I think it has a performance program, but largely it's skill development and uh, circus skills. And it's, you know, really for kids who are athletic and uh, sporty, but maybe are not into competitive ball sports, which is really the dominant force of, of sport in school, certainly. And uh, the Gravity and Other Myths team had all been together as part of Sir Kids and came out when they were 18, 19, and continued to love working together. And so they created this company. And the great thing about the fact that they'd worked together in Sir Kids as children and then teenagers is that they knew each other really well. There was an incredible trust between them and a confidence, I think, in the group in that they didn't need to copy anybody else, any of the touring circuses or physical theatre companies that they had seen around Australia or around the world or indeed, you know, had appeared in Adelaide. They had their own thing going and they started slowly to develop it. And they did perform at a couple of fringe events and were immediately very successful. But every show they did, they developed more, they were more cohesive and they had uh, their own style was more and more distinctive. And I saw uh, really what was a breakthrough show for them called A Simple Space at the 2016 Fringe. And it was so thrilling because obviously, you know, as an international festival, you don't want to put a local company up against some of the greatest artists yeah. of our generation yeah. and it to feel like that the local team would have been the bad ticket to get you should just spend your money on you know the one of the one of the greats that's coming to town mm-hmm. uh, you certainly want the work that's presented by the locals to stand absolutely alongside the international artists and it was really clear seeing a simple space that this company had uh, what it takes to um, for for further investment and so we said we want to commission you and we're going to that means we're going to give you you know a longer rehearsal time where all of the performers are paid you'll have extended time in the theater you'll be able to engage a lighting designer a technical director a sound designer a composer uh, all of the things that as a fringe act had been way beyond their economic grasp Mm -hmm. and they said that they'd never had that opportunity before and it was an absolute game changer for them it wasn't that they didn't have that uh, raw unique quality that made them so compelling and that sold out the tents that they sold it at the fringe it was because um it enabled them to take their practice to the next level and so when we premiered backbone in 2017 it was an incredible thrill because we certainly brought all of our uh, colleagues from the major festivals around the country none of whom had ever heard of gravity and other myths uh, as well as international friends colleagues and to see their global success has been so thrilling because it's exactly what Uh, one of the jobs of a festival is to find those artists who haven't been uh, really on the global arts radar other than as fringe acts and we probably both know there are so many fringe acts at Edinburgh Fringe for example Uh, it's not unusual but to have um, a company spend that extra time where their production values are suddenly at the next level Mm -hmm. where they are working with really really experienced uh, creatives 
in lighting design, in, in composition, in sound design, for example, and uh, be energised by the new creative input and the new toys that they can play with and yeah. to see what those amazing imaginations can do uh, when they when they put their skills and knowledge and, and interests together with, with these other artists and to create something um, like Backbone and uh, and now uh, in 2019 Out of Chaos. It's, it's just a sort of perfect example of how you hope local companies that do have an original quality to them can be supported by major festivals and then go on to conquer the world. Yeah. I can think of a few companies I've, I've met in international festival cities who... Um, yeah, that opportunity would be life-changing. Um, so um, that's kind of the local. To think nationally, um, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about um, is intersectionality on the stage. So like, I'm a mega feminist, um, and I, uh, I'm realising I think I'm kind of going through one of my really political stages where I... I'm just so keen to see women of colour, um, queer women, telling stories and both performing as part of ensembles that tell those stories and don't. You know, a queer woman can be on stage in a straight piece of brilliant Ibsen, you know, and it doesn't matter that she's queer, but at the same time that artists should be encouraged to write and make work about their story. Um, what do we do to ensure that that intersectionality that we're all kind of excited we can talk about without being told to shut up stupid feminist arts women um which had which happens a lot for me anyway Mm. um what do we do to ensure that those people are on the main stage so they're not in the studios um does that mean we need to say you've made similar to gravity and other myths you've made your one woman show and that will sell 200 tickets but to sell 1200 we want to put you in this position how do we begin to start to wrangle the industry so that lid is flipped. I think um, in the case of, of, I guess, emerging artists, uh, one of the things that we try and do is put ourselves in front of their work and see its potential. It may be a bit like a simple space that we don't book that particular work, but we can see that there is something, as we did with Gravity, that is idiosyncratically theirs, mm-hmm. particularly in, uh, you know, in, in a crowded market, whether it's cabaret or theatre or um, uh, or spoken word or um, slam poetry. I mean, there's there's lots of artists doing lots of work, and it's very easy, I think, for work to become derivative. But when you see something that seems there's a there's a core energy in that artist that is not just not like anybody else then that's really the moment to step in and say look i'm I'm not going to guarantee you a performance season but what i am going to do is give you some money to uh to commission you to work on something Mm -hmm. and we'll stay really close to you we'll come to the developments we'll be there as a sounding board we will keep talking to you as as the creative development evolves Uh, we've also got um, the opportunity in Australia there's a federal government pool of money called the major festivals fund and it's there to support work for the Australian uh, International Festival um, Australian international festivals that happen around the country and the way it works is and this is as it happens something that occurred with Gravity and Other Myths is that if you find an artist that you feel has a lot of potential and that you're quite excited about you can propose support for them to this group and if one other festival and a third partner could be an art centre mm-hmm. could be a theatre company agree to support um this artist or company, then the federal funding will pay for 50% of the pre-production costs. You pay for the presentation costs when it's finally presented at the festival and you pay your share of the remaining 50%. And it has been the most incredible resource, not only a financial resource, self-evidently, but for getting that artist's work known beyond the state in which they are developing the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned earlier that Gravity and Other Myths were not... Uh, really known around Australia so apart from the money that they were given it also meant that suddenly Sydney festival audiences could see them and Melbourne festival audiences could see them and they could build a um, they could build uh, an audience base and I feel like um, that 
for artists who have not been uh, given sufficient platforms or profiles in our major festivals, that that uh, extra effort in finding people with potential is really required. I think it's it would be the wrong approach to simply go out looking for international festival ready work and yeah. say, well, if you don't meet this benchmark, then sorry, you know, it's this isn't the right platform for you. I think you have to work a bit harder than that. Um, and what do we do to continue to address the imbalance between mostly white cis men making work, writing work, getting into those big spaces and making sure women and um, femme-identifying people are on those spaces. Yeah. Uh, look On those stages, rather. Uh, look, I usually say that... And behind the scenes, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like I... Well, I shouldn't say I. We feel that we can't program to... Um, um, I guess a set of targets but what we can do is make sure that we are seeing equal amounts of work by uh, uh, artists of colour, uh, by uh, uh, queer identifying artists, by uh, as many women as we can because often you know so much of our jobs is deciding who we are going to see when we go on our trips, yeah. wh whose work, I mean we're overseas a great deal but we're not going to see everything that's on around the world, obviously. And we rely hugely on advice from colleagues, um, the media, the critical response, uh, what other festivals are programming in order to refine our um, our itineraries. And, you know, w when we're overseas, we don't take a single day off. I'll go away for three and a half weeks and I will there will not be a single day's rest in there and I will try and see as many shows as I can every day because obviously every trip is a real investment in um, in the festival's pro future programs and uh, and if I don't see if I don't expose myself mm -hmm. to work um, by artists that aren't uh, older white European men then uh, of course they're never going to find their way into our program yeah. and so that's become an incredibly important part of the behind the scenes uh, travel planning and that I think is, um, it's, you know, for us anyway, it's uh, an essential precursor to any future decisions. Do you start, do you feel, because you must be planning a few years ahead, yep. do you feel you're starting to see a shift? Look, I yes, I do. Certainly in, in small and medium-sized work, absolutely there's a shift. Um, you know, the, the really uh, centrepiece work, you know, the... Rebellapage or um, the Shabuna or um, the work from the National or uh, Toniel Group in Amsterdam. I mean, these are the big companies that often tour across the globe. And with the exception of Katie Mitchell, you really don't see um, women directing those roles, uh, sorry, directing those big companies uh, in the same numbers that men are. But I have to say, when I saw uh, relative newcomer Rebecca Frecknell's uh, uh, Summer and Smoke at the Almeida uh, a few weeks ago, it was just incredibly thrilling because I felt like uh, this was um, a young director. She's an associate, I think, at the Almeida. Uh, of course, she'd done a, you know, a few things, but suddenly a relative... Uh, newcomer certainly globally I mean she's not a newcomer in, yeah. in London but I'd not heard of her before this breakthrough show and uh, the reviewers are just going absolutely nuts for her and saying this is an extraordinary production and uh, sitting in the audience it just you know you get a rush of excitement because the um, a rush of adrenaline because you think this is a really distinctive new vision everything that she has um, decided to do with you know a relatively obscure Tennessee Williams it's hardly ever performed so many of her decisions are original and interesting and I can't stop thinking about it after I've seen it oh wow and so you know, because those moments feel so comparatively rare. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, yeah, you think, wow, wow. And so, in fact, she's doing a new work in um, 
in uh, late April, and it's on. You know, it's the first thing I wrote on my my next travel schedule. Is uh, I'm you take particular interest because it's rare, and you 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 know you're dying to um, support work at that level uh, that's being directed by such an original uh, new vision. And she's a obviously a really talented woman. Yeah. So what do we do to ensure? Um, that becomes less and less rare because I don't know I definitely have a um, super strong reaction when I see something created by performed by imagined by a woman because it is more rare and I choose to mostly see that work now yep. because it's curated for me and I can pick those things out of the program but you yep. know they are this, this smaller amount of work um, what do you feel your role is in pushing for that shift um, and what do you think proactively we can all do within the industry? I mean, I think definitely my kind of peer group coming out of university won't take much nonsense, but we only have so much influence. Um, and whenever, you know, it's, there's a lot of theatre makers and artists in that group, whenever there's the cash to buy an international festival ticket, that way is where it goes. Mm. Um, but yeah, what do you think? What are your... Look, it's, you know, obviously it's an industry-wide problem. Festivals are... Uh, I mean, of course, we commission. That is a, a part of what we do. But most of what we program is existing work. And so mm. for us, the effort is ensuring that when we are travelling and we are seeing work, that all of which is you know, in consideration for our festival, that we are including... Uh, that, that we're seeing a diversity of work made by a diversity of artists. The, the much more profound challenge I think is those organisations who in Australia it's subscription season theatre companies who get significant amounts of state and federal subsidy who are producing 6, 8, 10, 12 shows a year. Now that's they're the shows that the international festivals will buy and so that's the grassroots making of new work. If you're an organisation whose job it is is to do nothing else except make new work, then I think there are, you know, the questions, well, who 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 am I inviting to make new work with my company? Uh, who am I taking a risk on? Who is getting the creative developments? Which scripts am I supporting? What kind of resources are they getting? Are the women only getting the one and two handers? Are they getting the resources and uh, the production values, um, the production budgets rather, that uh, that the men have traditionally received? And there's been a lot of talk uh, in Australia, particularly amongst the female directors that are around the country, about the the imbalance between the budgets and resources that and cast sizes that many of the young men male directors receive compared to um, the women so it's not just a case of looking through a subscription season brochure and saying well yes there's equal um, or there's you know 40% women 60% men it's also about um, the scale the support the creative development that's been made available yeah. behind that and I think you know Certainly there's been a lot of agitation in Australia on social media and elsewhere about parity in that area and better parity, and I think there is real change. Um, clearly it's not speedy enough for many people, and I totally understand that, uh, but you can see that there is that there is change. A cheeky question. Have you ever signed off an email regards Rachel Healy that said, I wasn't excited about that program and I'm gutted because I feel you should be doing more. Would you ever do that? Or would you say that over a glass of wine? At a, um, or, or do you feel it's not your place? You know, because it's so difficult because you hold a, you know, a, a, a really high position within the industry. So with that, there's the accountability, but there's also, is it my place? Am I a peer? Am I, would you ever do that? Uh, Have you ever done that? I would certainly... Look, absolutely. I mean, if I was sitting there with a glass of wine and having uh, a frank conversation with any of the artistic directors or general managers of the major companies or opera companies or symphony orchestras around the country, 
uh, this, yeah, there's there's no reason not to be extremely frank. Everybody, I, I don't know whether it's an Australian characteristic, but everybody really is very frank, uh, I think, behind the scenes. Uh, I think people here tend to be much more cautious about making public statements um, mm. and criticising colleagues, programming decisions uh, in print. I think it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that happens over a drink where you say, you know, what happened? What, like, wh- why are... Uh, uh, why were there no um, non-Anglo artists in your brochure this year? Like, are you struggling to cast uh, in your productions artists um, that aren't white? Is that a, is that a challenge? Do you need extra support? Can we help with that? I mean, you can have those conversations, yeah. I think, over a drink, and probably be more successful than give an interview with the Herald where you say this is an outrage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you know that's peer to peer. It's that funny thing you discover as you step into the industry and as you continue to go through it is the amount that people you worked with or people whose work you saw and you fell into conversation in the bar then become the people you start to in turn hold accountable and discuss these key things. Yep. Um, final question. Um, in terms of, um, I've written world work, kind of looks like world war. World war. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about in terms of like Australian programming and representing Australia, and I know it's I know the the program is international. Like um, on Poyo Rocco is a show I worked with when they were at Dance Base in really? the Fringe. Aww. I love those boys. Yeah, um, and uh, it's just a magical show, um, and uh, seeing that work come round. But in terms of Australia, yeah. So if we were saying like the Edinburgh International Festival. Um, the absolute cliche would be we have to have kilts somewhere in terms of like Australia and contemporary responses to colonialism and um, the experience of kind of the diaspora and the move people who have moved and immigrated and settled in Australia what other things in 2019 2020 21 and trying to ignore all the other kind of kind of fragility and shifting kind of plates around the world politically what represents australia and um and what what is going to happen next in theater that ensures that a a real australia is presented to the world and again i am talking about intersectionality and people of color and Mm. and 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 um and those uh people women and men in australia who are very much australian but are um, of Tongan heritage or yep. Samoan or you know all of those different things what how is that Australia represented uh, look I think this is uh, an area where you absolutely will start to see a shift over the next decade I mean one of the shows that we co-commissioned in this year's festival is Counting and Cracking uh, which uh, was produced by Belvoir and I think that they've said that there has been this is the first large-scale uh, migrant story, if you like, that's ever been on Australia's major theatre stages. Um, it's uh, it's a story of... Um, it's sort of told in, in, in two ways. Um, the main character... Uh, came out from Sri Lanka with his mother as a baby, lives in Western Sydney, um, falls in love at university with an Indigenous girl, and then suddenly a phone call comes in that absolutely rocks their world. It turns out that his father, who he thought had died during the Sri Lankan uh, uh, civil war, had in fact been imprisoned in that uh, in that period. And this, this, this play has been taken uh, in large part from Shakti's own life. And uh, the work itself then kind of spirals back to uh, what happened in Sri Lanka in the 50s and 60s. And so it's a story of Australia as it was a place of healing and hope, but also a story of Sri Lanka and two worlds and how those two worlds collide in contemporary Australia. And uh, the head of the Australia Council, um, who's only recently been appointed, has given his first uh, major interview where he talked about um, his experience of sitting in that play, an absolute revelation for the major theatre companies of this country, saying this is the first time my own family's story is being told on our stages. It turns out he is from Sri Lanka. I had no idea. Um, And I think uh, that that the success of this show, it, it sold out, it had 
five stars in Sydney. It, it you know, it will it open the Adelaide Festival in about ten days, uh, and the clear and passionate interest in people not just to tell those stories but to hear those stories has been I think a a a thrilling eye-opener for everybody in this country that there's in fact so many uh, stories from uh, our community from our very multicultural community that have been for whatever reason uh, uh, ignored or sidestepped or simply not considered. Um, I also think uh, you know one of the the really uh, extraordinary pieces of visual arts uh, in our program is by New Zealand artist Lisa Rihanna uh, called In Pursuit of Venus. It was one of the most talked about, uh, most acclaimed works at the Venice Biennale two years ago and it's about um, Cook's interaction with the Indigenous people of New Zealand, Australia and the Pacific and it's the most incredible uh, multimedia work, uh, absolutely enormous in scale, took her 10 years to produce and it's been created on uh, what appears to be traditional wallpaper from the 1800s but in fact there is dozens and dozens of tiny scenes of interaction between um, the um, uh, uh, the British colonisers and the Indigenous people in all kinds of interactions uh, that plays out as the, the camera, if you like, pans really slowly around uh, this um, one of the islands. I mean it's a dazzling work and raises so many fascinating questions, uh, even about our supposed origins, in mm-hmm. inverted commas. Uh, and to see um, work that I guess challenges uh, the the myths that still pervade Australia about uh, the settlement of Australia, um, the idea of terra nullius, and that play to uh, a very broad festival audience is, uh, you know, they're the works that are getting the five stars that are, are getting the mm-hmm. acclaim because they are fresh perspectives into our shared experiences and they are absolutely rewriting our um, uh, the histories that we've, you know, that or the official histories that that we've all been um, that we've all been educated in. Great. Oh, I'm, I'm leaving next Friday. I'm good. I'm not going to get to see it. Okay, final, final, final question. And it's a one-word answer. Um, would you change the date of Australia Day, now known as in a lot of artistic circles as Invasion Day? Would you pick a new date and say, this celebrates the multicultural society of Australia and our Indigenous... Or what would you do? Well, the one-word answer is yes. <laughs> There's no question about that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Rachel, and have a wonderful festival. And um, I look forward to seeing um, bits and bobs crop up in uh, in the UK and in Europe soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. been lots of fun. Thank you. Ain't that nice? Yeah, I think it's all right. Yeah. What to chew on there? It's a different good tone. Yeah. Different timbre. Yeah, and you obvi- you can tell you guys obviously got along. So you're kind of bouncing off each other and chatting away about feminism and programming and parenting and yeah. division of labour. And it was just really insightful. Yeah. I love it. I was sweating a lot. <laughs> it was warm. I cycled all my gear into town. Um, what were you just talking about? Um, internalising language. Yeah. Because um, I noticed when I was listening to that and she was talking about... Um, her partner, her husband, her partner looking after their children, and I it reminded me of a tweet I saw recently where it was somebody talking, a woman talking about this weird. Um, oh, hello, music. Oh, you. someone's got their speakers on. Nice, <laughs> nice wheels, <laughs> bra. Um, <laughs> talking about this weird trait in people where if they meet someone that they know has children, or maybe they're just introduced to them and children come up in the conversation, they then ask them, "Oh, who's looking after your child right now?" And it's happened to me so often since becoming a mum. Like, I've been asked when I was at uni, during my degree show, uh, at work, like, on a night out, like, with really close friends. And how do you answer that? Oh, I don't know. I just left her in the street. I left her with some mud and worms to play with. I'm sure she'll be fine. Depend on the kindness of strangers. Um, And we don't ask dads that. No. We never ask dads that. And it's a very odd thing. Or it's like a friend of mine. And she only asked me this once because I shot her down completely. And uh, she asked 
we went it was one of my first nights out after having a baby and she asked me where uh, who was looking after my daughter and she went oh is, is it your partner is he babysitting and I just went he's not babysitting he's parenting yeah. and she kind of, you kind of see the realisation flash yeah. across her face of oh my god what have I said and she's never said it since no I've, no no because you would you just completely readjust but mm. that's what you're told men babysit women parent yeah bullshit yeah. Um, that reminds me a little bit of uh, where, where are your children I've mm-hmm. been watching the Maddie McCann documentary I haven't been able to bring myself to so the to first three eps is basically everything we knew on the tv but then basically it just goes completely mental because mm. this like scottish businessman gave them loads of money or said i will pay for anything you need to try and find her and they like they hired one private detective who like arsoned not a, it wasn't a suspect ever like literally someone who didn't pick up a phone call from someone who was a suspect mm-hmm. they like burnt his car out and like wrote like a liar in the street next to it I mean they you know he was openly like oh I don't care about the law I'll do whatever needs to be done um, and then they hired another private detective who turned out was like a fraudster and then they said they like focused on like getting justice for the for getting the fraudster done for being a fraudster and I was like what is even happening mm-hmm. and then every now and again you see like Kate and Jerry McCann just getting on with their lives and you're like this is the most extraordinary circus mm-hmm. um, and also so I, I don't know I had a break not because I was feeling like sad but I had a break after the first three apps because I was like I think this is boring and then it just goes mental bonkers Um but also I've been watching, have watched the whole first series, have devoured the whole first series of Dead to Me. Oh, I've not seen that either. Oh, all, all the ladies, you watch it, and all the men. But I'm obs- I've always been obsessed with Christina Applegate since mm-hmm. um, The Sweetest Thing. Oh. Which is amazing. I've always liked her since uh, Anchorman. Oh, she is Tits McGee. Quite the thing. <laughs> She's great. We love her. And, um, yeah, Will um, Will Farrell and her exec producers on this. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Oh. I don't know who wrote it. Need to have a look. But I'm ready to watch it all again, all the way through. Amazing. It's so, I'm so, like, it's it seems rare now that you discover a Netflix, Netflix thing without people telling you. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also, have you watched Homecoming yet? No. Okay, you need to watch that before the next uh, pod. I'm- barely started the new series of Game of Thrones which means for the last few weeks I've been avoiding spoilers I did see a really big spoiler the other day without even trying I was like oh come on guys <laughs> I haven't seen it yet I couldn't watch the first episode because it wouldn't play and then I started watching the second episode I thought ah oh, I'll pick it up and the second episode was a really dark one they were talking about the cinematography yes. and I was just like I, I did understand it though because I was like it's north it's winter there's no such thing as electricity it's candlelight and firelight of course it's dark but I, there are points where I was like I really I can't that's a fake can you maybe. turn up the Instagram hello, filter? Hello, hello. But Tormund was great. Tormund and Brienne. Tormund's the great. We yeah. love Tormund. I was trying to think of like a spoiler there that wouldn't piss people off. Not a spoiler, a fake spoiler. Mm. And then everything I thought of was like, no, actually that could happen. That kind of does happen, yep. yeah. Yeah. But it was... So I'm just... I didn't see all of the second episode because my daughter I was I got up early in the morning I was watching it and then she woke up. Of course, I had to turn it off. But it was the night before the battle. And they're all in, um, what's it, Winterfell. Yeah. And it's just that like they're all kind of waiting, getting prepared, but they all know they probably will die the next day. And there's just an amazing feeling that they managed to capture. Just like, cool, well, let's, let's just sit about and chat. And it was just really No really one's sleeping tonight. No. And it was just really interesting. I was like, that's incredible. I did like that episode a lot. Yeah. That was a really good episode. Yeah. Um, I, well, I've been going around to a friend since season three or four um because we used to not now tv doesn't exist and they mm. were the only one who paid for sky so we would all go around there on a monday night for game of thrones club so we watched the original throne cast with jamie east and rachel actual paris who's nice. now like properly recognized for her amazing she's on the nap mash mm-hmm. report um so it was a real end of an era yeah. i was like I was I broke up with my ex-boyfriend was single super promiscuous and then met my now husband during this time Aww. it was nuts yeah. and also one of my favourite things it reminded me of was there were evenings in the singles where I like didn't have any like anyone to sit with on the sofa or any cuddles or anything and like me and two boyfriends um 
would sit when no one else turned up for Game of Thrones Club it would just be the three of us and it was quite a few times and I would just sit between them on the sofa with my little legs crossed like my boys Aww. it was beautiful <laughs> beautiful memories beautiful beautiful so hopefully next time we record I will be catched up on that and I'll have yes. catched up as my daughter said caught get, up on that get catched up and um, also watch Homecoming yes there's so much I have to watch I have to finish Drag Race no, it's like I'm not an editor. I have the time. It's really the same. Mem, I've got so much time now. Like I can, I'm starting to clear my my house out of all the crap that I've accumulated over the last few years of being an editor. I'm like, right, I don't need this anymore. You're queer ironing yourself. I am. I'm getting there. Whole new me, baby. Um, this is a funny note to end on, in case she might be listening. Natalie off Broadway World. Did you see Natalie her? O'Donoghue? That's the one. There's she only did, one O'Donoghue. There's only one O'Donoghue. She did a tweet the other week where she was like, "I've got Tan Francis." She doesn't sound like this. She's Scottish. Some guys go, "I've got Tan Francis book." because I'm a journalist and I don't know who he is so I started reading it and then quickly realised I needed to watch Queer Eye and then I watched three series in three <laughs> days yeah it happens and man. I was like, it's addictive how have you not watched Queer Eye yeah I remember it the first time round the UK and US version the UK version was terrible the only one I remember who was in it was Jason Gardner and he was like the the culture guru and he oh. would take them to HMV and be like you need to buy this CD Sister Sisters are really big right now and I always thought he was a really pointless one because he was trying to tell people what to like because it was fashionable and it was like no look get to know the person and find out what they like and then like base stuff on that no. rather than being like sister sisters are really in right now because it's 2004 stuff upon them yeah Done. weird Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, welcome. We didn't even say welcome to season two. Welcome to season two of Don't Speak. It's basically st- we don't know if there'll be a third season. This might season might just go on forever. Yeah. But we had a break um, because of exceptional workloads for both of us yes. and marriages and you know life, life. Really? Yeah. yeah. But we are back fortnightly on a Wednesday. <clears throat> yes. Thursday on a Wednesday podcast on a Thursday. Thank you. Uh, so yay. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the end. Cool. Welcome back. Chin chin. Bye. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye bye.